Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think absolutely many of the things that we do today will be looked back upon in, in horror. Uh, you know, we're, we're no different in that sense. But I believe that we're also no different in the sense that we're not going to figure it out. This is going to be an ongoing battle. It's always going to be an ongoing battle. Politics is not going to go away. And this battle between ensuring the rights of underrepresented people or of the environment protecting them in the face of intruding, growing, expanding, and ruthless markets. It's, it's a running battle, and I think that will always continue. And we're always going to need to be fighting the good fight. It is health that is the real wealth, not pieces of gold and silver. The insightful words of Indian politician, activist and writer Mahatma Gandhi. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to delve deep into the complex, murky and not so glamorous world of the gold jewellery market and ask, how dirty is the gold mining business? This evening, I'm joined by Michael Bloomfield, a Canadian academic and political activist whose latest book, Dirty Gold, How Activism Transformed the Jewellery Industry, has just been published by MIT Press, where Michael argues, history shows us that violence is a stubborn handmaiden of mineral extraction. Precious commodity mining without the spilling of blood has been all too rare, and the gold commodity chain is among the bloodiest. So how do we, yes you and me, ensure as consumers that our gold is ethically sourced? And how do we make the big fancy brands and your average retailer think and act more ethically? Hello, my name is Michael Bloomfield. I'm lecturer in international development at the University of Bath. I'm also research associate at the Oxford Department of International Development. I work on the politics of global supply chains, looking at social and environmental justice issues related to global production. I have a particular interest in extractives industry, so I've worked a lot on mining issues in policy and in academia, and my latest publication is called Dirty Gold, How Activism Transformed the Jewellery Industry, which is out with MIT Press. What a challenging and interesting read, Michael. Dirty Gold. It's it's such a thought-provoking book. And, um, you know, for any female listeners out there, and, and obviously lots of men also, we all love our jewellery and particularly our gold. And it brings up all sorts of ideas and images and symbols, doesn't it? Tell me, when I say the word gold, what comes into your mind? Well, see, when we think about gold, I think we all think about money. We think about wealth. Gold has always been a symbol of power and prestige, and this has always been the case throughout history and across cultures. I mean, we can think of the ancient Egyptians and the various artifacts that we covet from that time period. We can think of colonial wars. And actually, I mean, even today, gold has a deep significance culturally. In the West, we think of, I don't know, maybe engagement rings. Uh, But also in the East, it has a very deep cultural significance in India. And China is quickly becoming the largest market for gold jewelry. So gold is, I mean, over time and across cultures, it has been synonymous with wealth, with power, 
with prestige. Do you think it could be argued that societies are still built around gold? If we look at the, you know, ancient Egyptians, the Greeks and so on, clearly um, gold was a big trader and it had so, so much, you know, currency to put it, put it simply. But I'm just wondering, does it still have that traction, absolute traction, do you think? Well, I think it does. And I mean, it's a great question because it sounds very old fashioned. So gold still underpins the world economy in many ways. And although national currencies aren't linked directly to gold anymore, as the US dollar used to be, governments still hoard vast amounts of gold in order to, um, to control currency fluctuations, for example, and as a, a safe asset. So when the economy goes into a downward spiral, of course, investors stock up on gold because gold has always maintained a fairly consistent value throughout time. I mean, we've been excavating gold, as you said, since Egyptian times. So I think, you know, gold crosses history in that way. And, and, and it, as I said before, I mean, it's, it's incredibly interesting to think that we are still so obsessed with gold that we still seek gold across the globe. And this goes not just for Western culture, but across cultures. And when you think about it, every piece of gold has a story. Like I'm just sitting here today and I'm wearing a piece of Ecuadorian gold, or so I was led to believe when I got it in Ecuador. And I have some Colombian gold as well. But within that, the layers and layers, the supply chains, it's unbelievably complex, isn't it? Yeah, no, this is exactly the case with gold. So gold, of course, I mean, it comes from a specific place in the ground, but very quickly gold from a particular source becomes mixed at the refining stage. And not only that, but gold gets mixed with gold from other sources, but gold is also an indestructible element, really. And so all the gold that has ever been mined throughout history remains above ground as gold, and gold gets recycled over time. So, I mean, the best way to think about the complexity of the supply chain, I think, is if, you know, if you happen to have a piece of gold, look down at that piece of gold and think that gold within that ring, for example, some of it could have come from a large mine in, I don't know, Utah. Some of it could have come from a small mine by subsistence miners in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And some of it may have even been mined by ancient Egyptians 4,000 years ago. So gold is continually mixed and it continually circulates through our economy and through different markets, consumer markets, whether it be jewelry or electronics. And, and so I think this is important to keep in mind because when we're trying to trace the source of gold and trying to get at the conditions under which gold is mined, it, it quickly becomes very, very complex and very difficult. And Part of the story that takes place in Dirty Gold is trying to come to terms and develop systems through which we can trace gold and make the mining of gold more responsible. One of the one of the questions you've asked yourself in Dirty Gold, which I have to say is a rather provocative title for a book, is what is a responsible corporation? And, you know, a responsible corporation, whether it's in Ireland or England and the certain rules that they're bound by, it's very different across different regions around the world because we're, we all look at that, you know, responsibility in different in different ways, don't we? 
Yeah, I think one of the first things we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about responsible corporation is, well, I mean, I even point out in the book that some people might consider this an oxymoron from what we know about corporate practices across industries. But I think what we consider to be responsible corporate behavior also changes over time, and it's different for different people. So back in 1970, the, the famous Chicago economist Milton Friedman, he stated that a responsible corporation or the responsibility of a corporation is to increase its profits. And what he means by that is that corporations are a specific type of organization. And managers that run corporations have a responsibility to their shareholders, to the owners of that firm. And his point was, if you want corporations to act differently than they do, then you need to regulate them. And that's the job of government. And so for Friedman, I mean, it, it's, it's sort of a, a, a compelling argument in a way, because he's just saying, look, corporations aren't here to decide what is responsible or not. That's the work for democratically elected governments. Corporations just follow the rules. So they're responsible as long as they're obeying the law. But if we dig a little bit deeper, we can see that the argument's slightly disingenuous in as much as we know also that corporations have extreme power in our society and they often lobby for regulations that suit their best interests and not necessarily the best interests of society as a whole. So corporation, I mean, it's, it's clear that it's very important to come to terms with the ways in which corporations think and act. And I, I think what I'm trying to show in the book is that sometimes Corporations are more responsible in certain issue areas and not in others. And sometimes at the same time, different corporations are more or less responsible from one another. And what I'm trying to do is to come to terms with this variation amongst corporations in what they do and how they think and how they act so we can really carefully consider what actually does constitute responsible behavior from these corporations. It got me thinking as I was progressing through Dirty Gold, Michael, that in a lot of ways, there's not a lot we know about any corporations. Yeah, we know their name. We get annual reports, their trading and so on, their profit margins. They give press, you know, media calls, press and media calls and, you know, talk to their shareholders and so on. But a lot of these big high performance companies, you know, on the Nasdaq or whatever, it can be a shady business between all the regulative bodies that take place. You know, they can operate as kind of sovereign nations in their own right, can't they? No, they, ab- they absolutely can. They absolutely can. And they do so in many ways. Of course, the classic way that we think about is corporations lobbying government to get a regulatory environment that's more conducive to their goals, which is profit maximization and the maximization of shareholder value. But corporations also exercise power in other ways. They have a discursive power, right? They, they have a power of voice. So when a company like Tiffany & Company, for example, which, as you know, is one of the cases in my book, when they speak about what constitutes a responsible jeweler, that is an exercise of power. And that can be a very positive contribution that corporations can make. You talk about the supply chain and you say within extractive mining that um, the gold commodity chain is amongst the bloodiest. Now, they're very provocative words and they're very alarmist to a degree. But I'm just wondering, can you talk me through that? Yeah, sure. No, exactly. I mean, one of the things I had to come to terms with when I was researching 
this book was that many of these large mining companies do terrible things and have really a history of violence, right? Because many of these companies existed in colonial times, for example. And trying to reconcile that with the very nice people that I met that work for these corporations, I mean, that was part of the trick in writing the book. But I don't think that anyone can really dispute that mining has not been accompanied by a very violent past. And so, I mean, it's quite easy to think of conquering armies of the past, of colonialism, which I mentioned, of even nowadays forcing people off land to acquire resources. We could think of the Marikana mine in South Africa, and when 40-odd miners were shot and killed by security services. I mean, this is ongoing, and approximately 75% of mineral extraction takes place on indigenous land or land of people that are marginalized in the national discussions over resource extraction and resource use. So this violence comes in multiple forms. When it comes to small-scale mining, of course, there's the violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo that's ongoing. And so this is another example of wars over resources, but also the ways in which these resources can be used to fund these wars. So, you know, it's obviously, a, a, to say the least, an unfortunate partnership between violence and mineral extraction. But I think it's, it's one that's difficult to dispute. Michael, the conflict diamond issue in um, West Africa has really, uh, I suppose, captured popular culture to a degree. Like there's been a, a range of different movies, a lot of books written about it, both in fiction and in nonfiction. And, you know, we've also had um, plays, theatre and, you know, lots of different uh, approaches on understanding the issue. Do you think like the, the big luxury brands like, let's say, Cartier or Rolex or Tiffany & Co., one of the ones that you mentioned in the book, do you think they actually have have changed their business practices now because of all the literature and movies and song and dance about the exploitative practices within the diamond um, uh, manufacturing or within the whole kind of trade in jewellery and extractives? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and they absolutely have. I mean, when the diamond, when the blood diamond or conflict diamond controversy first arose, it kind of it caught the jewellery industry somewhat by surprise. They hadn't had to deal with these issues, right? Their job was to make jewelry, to make beautiful things, as well as, of course, you know, maximize shareholder value and all of those things we talked about before. But they were interested in selling jewelry. That was their business. Now, all of a sudden, they were being connected to these uh, egregious activities happening halfway around the world, which they may or may not have been directly connected to at the time. And so they were really caught off guard. And, and with these luxury brands, I mean, it's not hard to imagine that a lot of their value is tied up in their image. So Tiffany and Company, Cartier, these companies that you mentioned, I mean, they are their brand in, in the similar way that Nike is its brand. So they can contract out different people to make the jewelry. They can buy gold, for example, or diamonds from different companies. They can hire designers to come in and design things for them. What they are is this, this entity, this, you know, Tiffany is that little blue box. And, and being connected to these activities, as the activists were well aware, was in, incredibly risky and dangerous for these brands. And so they learned from this 
diamond experience. And, and that's why a lot of these companies were, were much more proactive and had kind of systems in place when it came to dirty gold. And it's quite a story because, you know, what, what actually um, transpired afterwards was unbelievably impressive. A lot of these shame campaigns can actually bring about massive changes in society, although some people would disagree with them. But I'm just wondering, what's your own view? Yeah, I mean, these shame campaigns have a huge impact as far as getting corporations to do something. OK, so they, they will spur these companies to respond. But what I found and what I explain in the book is really the way in which these companies respond specifically is usually up to the companies and the industry itself. So the activists can kind of create the space in which corporate social responsibility initiatives are formed and different kind of regulatory initiatives are launched, but they are rarely powerful enough to force corporations to do exactly what they want. So the companies kind of enjoy this discretionary space through which they drive their initiatives that kind of meet their business models and the expectations of their customers and their shareholders. So as far as actual impact of these shame campaigns, it's often a mixed bag. And I think, you know, the jewelry industry is doing a very good job at addressing these issues. However, the actual impact on mining practices on the ground, I think that's been quite limited by all accounts. Can we talk about Brilliant Earth? It's a it's a remarkable story. There were two students from the, I think it was the Stanford School of Business, and they decided to set up a company or a, a small business based on ethical jewellery. So ethically sourcing um, different types of metals and jewels and uh, and so on. You know, their model, uh, their ethical model, it's really impacted on other suppliers, both high quality and just your average type jewellery store as well, hasn't it? It's, a, it's quite a profound impact. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And, and, and we see this across industries. It's really in a direct response to these activist campaigns. And in this case, with Brilliant Earth, it's, it's less to do with the gold, although they're heavily involved in the politics around gold now, but more to do with what we were talking about before, the conflict diamonds. So activists in a way, when they politicize markets in this way, they create opportunities for new markets to form, in this case, ethical markets. And Brilliant Earth is such a, an interesting company because they are a quintessential market response to these types of campaigns. And that's not to say that the, the founders of Brilliant Earth don't believe in these issues. They absolutely do, and they're doing some incredible work to, to push companies to be more responsible and really raising the bar as to what constitutes an ethical jewelry company. But they're also business people. As you said, they were at Stanford Business School doing MBAs. They saw a market opportunity. They were looking for uh, ethical products in their own personal lives, looking for an engagement ring. Could not find a guaranteed ethically sourced engagement ring in the Bay Area. And so they decided that they would supply that that ring and supply that market. And so, so that's why I use them. There's many other ethical jewelers in the market. Uh, some are even started by activists, again, using markets to try to push this agenda. But I really thought Brilliant Earth was just such a great example of the way in which you can kind of politicize markets and the market will change. The market will respond to meet that new demand 
When you say the politics of gold just there, Michael, I'm just wondering, what do you mean by that in terms of how far does it reach? Like, you know, how politically active are a lot of these big um, gold mining groups and how, you know, what is their access to the real corridors of power? Oh, yeah. I mean, in this way, we kind of have to differentiate between there's the gold mining companies and there's different types of gold mining companies. And then there are the traders of gold and there are the refiners of gold. And there are, of course, gold jewelers. So gold jewelers were targeted by activists because they knew that the gold jewelers would respond. And that would hopefully get some of the miners to the table. But when we're talking about power, I mean, we, we really do need to talk about the gold miners themselves. Many of these companies are, are, you know, they're some of the largest companies in the world, and they have incredible access to corridors of power. I mean, I'm I, as I said before, I'm from I'm from Canada, and and the Toronto Stock Exchange, the TSX, is the major center where gold mining companies are listed, and they do impact when they get together. They impact the types of regulation that are in place in Canada and abroad. And so, I mean, there, there is a story of one um, opposition minister in Canada that tried to put forward a bill to control Canadian companies working abroad to ensure that they weren't encouraging human rights abuses by security services or complicit in that type of negative activity. So he put forward, he tabled this bill that said, OK, well, we're not we can't regulate these companies working abroad because, you know, it's out of our jurisdiction. That's up to the countries in which they're operating. But many of these companies enjoy subsidies from Canadian taxpayers, things like, you know, from Export Development Canada, so on and so forth. And they said, we could at least deny companies that are charged with these types of egregious activities. We could deny them taxpayer subsidies at the very least. Now, the mining industry hated this. They thought this was a terrible idea that it would be politicized, it would be terrible for business. And and they got together and, and they, they killed it in its tracks. And and that show of business power, the way in which they had lobbyists going into into parliament to lobby, they hired an ex minister who sort of again disingenuously said he said, I can't speak for CEOs of this com- these companies, but if I were one of these CEOs then I would strongly um, consider moving my business abroad because of the ability to politicize this type of law. And this is the way business operates to kind of send a regulatory chill, if you will, through policymakers by, again, using their voice to vocalize these types of threats. Policymakers then say, oh, we're going to be punished by these companies and by markets and maybe eventually by voters if we kind of overregulate in this way. And so this is, you know, it's just, it's kind of a great example of the ways in which these big industries and these big companies, once they put their mind to it, can can really impact the corridors of power and the regulation. How did you go about investigating that, though? Because clearly you're an academic and, you know, you use possibly certain types of disciplines and approaches. But if the links between um, business and politics are so murky and so deep and so hidden, I'm just wondering, how do you go about probing that and poking at it and opening it up? Because it's not clear cut. 